Welcome to Friend Day at Bethesda Church, and uh, we want to say a special welcome to those who may be here as uh, guests uh, of friends. Um, I know Manny has a group here uh, from the Guatemalan Church, and we want to say a special welcome to them, even though most of them probably have no idea what I'm saying right now. You can tell them later. We were glad that they were here and uh, part of our service today. Also, Bob and Penny have a group of friends over here as well. We want to say a special welcome to you all as well. And uh, others who may have friends here, thank you. You are uh, welcome to be here, and we delight that you are with us today. Uh, maybe you're here today and you came in and you're not with really anybody. You are welcome as well, as well as all of our regular attenders. Uh, it's great to be in the house of the Lord uh, this morning. Today I'm going to speak on a topic. You see my title, Victory Over Shame. And I think I can probably safely say that probably 75% of you, or at least three-quarters of you, I'm seeing if you're with me. That was intentional. Uh, at least three-quarters of you have probably never heard a message on shame. And I know I have never preached one on shame. But God has put this on my heart, and uh, I've recently read a couple of books as well that deals with the topic, uh, one by Diane Langberg that talks about suffering in the heart of God, and another one by Ed Welch called Shame Interrupted. If you have not uh, availed yourselves of those books, I would highly recommend them to you. They are not fast reads. You need to read slowly and thoughtfully. But in Shame Interrupted, Ed Welch opens his book with a story where he asks a group of 100 students. He said these are well-educated students. Uh, they're very adept at helping people with problems, uh, smart people, uh, good people, ages from 22 to 68. And he asked them, he said, have you ever experienced shame in your life? Now, he was a little concerned because he felt like he was exposed. He's like, my fear was that maybe nobody would raise their hand. <laughs> and so he kind of put himself out there, and then he said he even put himself out there a little further. He said, not just shame, but have you experienced debilitating shame? And he said, all 100 hands went up in unison. And it broke his heart. Because he realized that shame is really universal. It's something we all have. Every one of us in this room, if we've lived very long, have experienced shame. I have no doubt. And every one of us can look back and say, you know what, yeah, I remember this in my life, and this was a painful, dark, horrible thing that I just closed the door on, and I don't want anything to do with it ever again. And we closed the door on shame. As we look in the scriptures, obviously the Bible is a book about God, but it is also a book about shame. <laughs> and that's what draws us to God's word, is the fact that we have shame and God wants to do something about our shame. The Bible is a book that exposes the worst about us. It peels back the layers of our lives so that God can begin to work in our lives. The problem is when we stay away from God's word, 
we stay away from God working in our lives. And we come off his workbench and we stiff arm him and say, no, no thanks, God. I think I'll do this one on my own. When we need the help of the Lord. So let's first of all start off by identifying what is shame. As we talk about it, we think we all probably know what it is. We probably do to a degree. Let's look at it. What is shame? Shame, this comes out of Ed Welch's book, is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Take that in. Deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did. Something done to you. Something associated with you. Maybe somebody close to you did something shameful and you feel the effects of that shame. You feel exposed and humiliated. Let me go a little bit deeper. He gives a second definition that really probes a little bit further into this whole idea you are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human or you were associated with something less than human and there are witnesses. Disgraced. It's not a word that is comfortable, is it, for any of us. There's other words attached to shame. Outsider. Naked. Unclean. Guilt. Guilt can be hidden, but shame feels like it's always exposed. You're an outcast. Or a nicer way to say it would be you feel as if you're an outcast. You feel as if you're worthless, though you really are not. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond to encouraging, hopeful, beautiful, and true words that specifically target your shame? How do you respond to them? Well, let me give you some examples of how we can respond. One, I don't even notice them. They just go right by me, and I miss them. Or secondly, I think they might be helpful for somebody else, somebody less contaminated and bad than I am. Those can't be for me. Those are good words. Those are beautiful words. They're encouraging. They can't be for me. Thirdly, I'm not worthy of the words. How could they possibly be for me? I'm worthless. Fourthly, I don't care. I have worked with people and they've used that phrase, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. And the more they say that, the more I realize they do care. But they say they don't care because it keeps away the hurt and the shame. Or lastly, they speak to my heart and they bring hope. 
The answer should be E. But so often, it's A, B, C, or D for every one of us. Most people struggling with shame choose shame's hold over them, which makes them believe that they don't deserve to be rid of shame. And as a result, they treat hope as if it was a contaminated substance. So we know what shame is. How do we get out of it? The first steps of shame, out of shame will be the very hardest steps we've ever taken in our life. The first steps are anti-denial steps that we will begin to put our shame into words. Because you can't do battle with something you cannot define. So identification of the shame is the first step to getting out of shame. Identifying what is the shame. But that's not the whole story. After that, you will hear God's words to the shamed. And you will discover shame's opposite. I'm acceptable. I will receive honor. I will receive value. I will receive worth. And I will receive even glory. And it will be public. But let's go back to shame for a moment and make our way to acceptance of God. Consider for a moment a heroin addict. Yes, he's trashed his life and the lives of others, but his specialty is trashing his own life. Why would someone do such a thing? Because he is certain he deserves the worst. Addiction, with all of its humiliating behaviors and degrading consequences, perfectly depicts an addict's ever-present shame. Even successful people who look good on the outside can be filled with shame on the inside. Let me tell you, maybe, I don't know if there's any tennis fans in here, but Andre Agassi, you might remember that name. He was a very successful professional tennis player. Andre Agassi was successful by almost any standard, yet his secret meth habit did double duty on him. It gave him a high on one hand, but at the same time, here's what he said. I get an undeniable satisfaction from harming myself and shortening my career. After decades of only merely dabbling in masochism, I'm making it my mission. I hate tennis more than ever. Listen to this carefully. But I hate myself more. Yes, shame has a death wish. Maybe you know shame is low self-esteem. Worthless, failure. It seems to be inscribed on your birth certificate. Just try dislodging that low self-esteem with good grades or above average income or a red sports car and that shame will not budge. 
Shame says I'm unacceptable, I'm a mistake. There's a difference, though, between guilt and shame, although they come together. Guilt says I did something wrong. Shame says I am wrong. Guilt says I made a mistake. Shame says I am a mistake. Guilt says I did something horrible. Shame says I am horrible. The opposite of shame is not moral purity. It's glory and honor. So, with that in mind, here's a couple pictures of layers of wallpaper. Wallpaper does not come off easily when there's layers. And it's kind of ugly. When you begin to peel back the layers, it's pretty ugly. You can see the rips, the tears, the exposure of the bare wall, the mess on the floor. Who wants to deal with the mess, right? Here, they were tearing off wallpaper, and they had to tear back the whole wall because there were termites in the wall. See, the problem is when we begin to peel back layers of our lives, some of us haven't done that, and we may be afraid of what we might find behind the layers. And so, therefore, we leave it buried. But we buried a life. And God wants to do this. He wants to make something beautiful out of the mess, out of the shame. And he will, by the power of his spirit in our lives. So the question is, where did shame come from? We know it's here. We've all experienced it. Where did it come from? Well, the first pages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3. Man was tempted. Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden. God told them, commanded them not to eat of the fruit of the tree. They ate of the fruit of the tree. And what did they do? The Bible says they covered themselves with fig leaves and they ran and hid from the Lord. That's what they did. Why did they do that? Because of their sin, their disobedience. But listen, that disobedience and sin brought shame to them. Whenever we violate God's honor and God's glory and God's holiness, we have to run from that because we are no more honorable people. We are dishonorable people. We become contaminated, unclean, and we can't stand to be in the clean presence of a holy God. And so we run from that into a place called shame. And that's where the devil wants everyone, in shame. They saw themselves stripped and deprived of all honor, They saw themselves disgraced, degraded, and desolate. They felt guilty and exposed before God and one another. And so they made these coverings as a solution to save their esteem or their honor. They were saying, I'm defective, but God still honor me.
They made an objective decision, a moral decision to defy God. Their innocence was gone. They were guilty before God. And as a result, they had fear and they ran and they hid. Why? Why do people hide? They don't want to be exposed. So they cover up. They want to be invisible. When we feel defective, we shun exposure. But there's something more important in this story. What was God's response to their shame and their sin? Did he say, I don't want anything to do with you? Get, out of, get away from me? He did the opposite. He ran to them and said, where are you? I want to see you. I want you to be visible to me. Where are you? Come out of the trees. Come away from the coverings. Come into my presence. I want to see you. Even in your shameful condition, I want to have a relationship with you and deliver you from that. That was God's response. How do people hide today? With shame? They hide in pride and arrogance. They hide in their intellectual abilities. They hide in their economic status, their performance. Maybe they're a good athlete, and somehow their good prowess in athletics wipes away their shame. It doesn't. They hide in substances such as drugs and alcohol or rage. How do we respond to shame? Four ways we respond to shame. Let's look at them. Number one, we run and hide. That's what we see in this story in Adam and Eve. The fear of exposure, so they alienate themselves from other people and they alienate themselves from the truth. That's what shame does. A second thing, response to shame, is we attack ourselves. How do we do this? We diminish ourselves in the presence of others and we put ourselves down. We're shameful people, after all. We're unclean, we're dirty, we're naked people. So we attack ourselves and put ourselves down. If you want a good example of this, jot down Mark chapter 5. The man who was possessed of a demon. Here's what it says that he did. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. He attacked himself. He cut himself. Why? Because of his shame. He didn't know how to handle it. He felt better when he hurt himself. But that's not God's plan for dealing with shame. Third response is avoidance. I hide my feelings of shame entirely from myself, and how do I do that? I take alcohol, I take narcotics or other addictions. A variation of avoidance to draw attention to ourselves is another way that people do it through exhibitionistic behavior, self-love, 
They have connection with people, but no intimacy with people. A fourth one is they attack other people, especially the vulnerable. They dole out their own sense of shame onto other people, and they attack them because that's their way to protect themselves in their shameful state. Take a moment and turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is a familiar story. Jesus, the Jew, Jewish man, is making his way from Galilee to Samaria. He's going through Samaria, I should say. And on his way through there, he stops at Jacob's well in a town called Sychar. And there he meets a woman who is unnamed. She's not even given a name in the scriptures. And he meets her there, and he's thirsty from all of his travels, and he's tired. It shows the humanness of Jesus, that he's tired and thirsty. And he asks this Samaritan woman, would you please give me a drink? <laughs> a simple question. And she's like, how can you, a Jew, ask a Samaritan woman for a drink? Because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, like in the deep south where you have the whites and the blacks. They hated one another. There was hatred. And she recognized that he was a Jew. He was also a man. For her to talk to a Jewish man was anathema. You don't do that. That's not culturally acceptable. And especially thinking about her own condition, that she was a sinful woman. Why was she going to the well at the time of day she did at the sixth hour? She was going there because none of her neighbors went there at that time. None of them. She did not want to be seen. She wanted to be invisible. She wanted to avoid people. She wanted to run and hide. Why? She had a shameful past and a shameful present. And she did not want to interact with anybody. To get into a verbal dialogue with someone, you know what? That's dangerous for some people. You know why? Because they begin to feel exposed. They open up their life. And when you begin to open up your life to someone and you talk with someone, you are beginning to peel back layers of your life. And she had layers that she didn't want Jesus to know anything about at all. And so Jesus engages her in this conversation. Her shame and her guilt kept her living in isolation from her neighbors. She had too many wounds in her life. But here's what I want to remind us all about. Jesus cares deeply about this shame-filled woman. He cares deeply about her. Deeper than she can possibly imagine. Because he didn't want just physical water. He wanted to give her living water. The words of life. The words that would remove her shame forever. And her sin. So he cares very, very deeply about her. And he gauges in this dialogue with her. Will you give me a drink? 
And he shows he has needs just like she does. But she strategically went to the well when no one else would be there. She wanted to be invisible. The second aspect we see here is that Jesus knows this shame-filled woman intimately. Because as they engage in this dialogue, in this conversation, Jesus, she says, sir, in verse 15, give me this water so I won't be thirsty and have to keep coming here day after day to draw water. And he tells her, go call your husband and come back. What's that have to do with water? <laughs> go call your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. So this dialogue exposes her and opens her up. And he says, you know what? I know you don't have a husband. But you've had five other men. And he could, he could have listed them by name. What's this tell us? He knew everything about this woman that he should have been a million miles away from because she was dirty, unclean, ashamed woman. And he wanted a relationship with her. He wanted to dialogue with her. He wanted an intimate relationship with her. And he's saying, I know all of this about you, and I'm here to give you something that you can't get from this well. You can only get it from me, living water. The shame can be taken away. You see, we can't talk our way out of shame. We can't act our way out of shame. It sticks to us like glue, like barnacles. We can't get rid of it. Only Jesus can take away our shame and our sin. What does she say? Look in verse 29. Come see a man, she says, who told me all that I ever did can this be the Christ. Everything she ever did, every man she ever slept with, every person... She was in an immoral relationship with Jesus knew every act of her sinful life, her shameful life. And he says, you know what? I'm willing to forgive that. I'm willing to cleanse that. I'm willing to take your shame. If you will accept my gift of living water, all you have to do is receive it by faith. Will you do that? Will you do that? How do we get rid of our shame? We have to realize that Jesus became shame for us. God invites us into his kingdom. When we look at the story of the gospel, we see that a baby is born to an unwed mother, and that is shameful. He's a child of Nazareth, no less, a shameful place. He's a person who has touched lepers and demoniacs, shameful people. He is sold for the price of a slave, shameful. He is beaten and spit on, shameful. And then he is lifted up on a wicked, cruel cross. And he's nailed to the cross, bleeding, but not just nailed to the cross. He's stripped naked. Does that sound familiar? What were Adam and Eve in the garden? 
naked, shamed. To be exposed on a cross in the air in front of the public, naked, is the most shameful, humiliating, horrible death a person could ever die. And there he is in full public view, the very thing that you want to be invisible, like Adam and Eve. And he exposes himself on the cross. He becomes shame. He takes my shame and my sin upon himself. He takes your sin and your shame upon himself so we could have a relationship with him. And he delivers me from my shame. Whether it was something that was done to me or something I've done to somebody else, God wants to deliver me from my shame. He couldn't hide on the cross. He embodied shame. Let me read a verse of Scripture to you that really explains it in Hebrews chapter 12. This is interesting. The words that this author writes is pretty amazing when you think about it. Because again, when we're in a shame-filled condition, we want to be invisible. And what does the writer say in Hebrews 12 too? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The shame-filled, crucified Savior. Fix your eyes on that shameful, unclean, dirty, filthy person on the cross because he became that for me and for you. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In the New Testament, you remember there were lepers that came, and Jesus, he didn't just heal them. The Bible says he touched them. Why? Why would he do that when he could have just speak the word and heal them? He wanted to say, I am not afraid of your uncleanness. I am not afraid of your shame. I'm not afraid of your guilt and your wrongdoing. I came to set you free from that and to give you new life in Jesus Christ. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. I give it to you free of charge because I love you. I mean, we see the terminology, and I don't have time to go into all this, but when you look at the terminology of Israel and how they were a harlot, and God is the faithful husband, he's saying, I love you. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, he says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. He said, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers 
that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. How do we get rid of our shame? Not by focusing on it. We have to focus on the one who became shame and who loved me and sacrificed his life on the cross and said, I will take all of your shame away from you. You will be clean, you will be accepted, you will be loved, you will be valued, you will be honored, and you will receive glory. And isn't it interesting when we look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the second letter that he wrote in chapter 3, down toward the end of that chapter, he says, we who with unveiled faces will behold the glory of God and we will radiate his glory because the shame is gone. That's a great story. It's a story, but here's the problem. I have shame. That must be for those people over there. That can't be for me. No, it's for you. It's for you. It's for me. That's who he died for. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I would just ask you, in the quietness of this moment, in the quietness of your heart, I believe that God is sovereign, which means he knows everything and he is in control of everything. He knows you, he knows me intimately, and he knew that on November 5th, 2017, you were going to be at Bethesda Church for Friend Day. Most of us probably thought we would be here, but many of us maybe didn't. And God brought you here to hear this message that has encouraging words, hopeful words, beautiful words, and true words. How are you going to receive it? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and became shame for your shame, for your sin? If so, the Bible says all you have to do is confess your sin and your shame to the Lord. God, I recognize my shame. I recognize my sin. I recognize my disobedience where I didn't denied you. I defied you. And God, I invite you into my life and ask Jesus to forgive me of all my sin and remove all my shame so that I could feel the acceptance of the Lord, the love of the Lord, the grace of the Lord. That's why he died. You say, but I don't know if I can quit. You can't, but God can help you. You see, the Bible says that as many as received him, to them gave he the right or the power to become the sons of God. He will give you power in your life that you do not have. He will give you grace to make changes in your life you cannot make. And he'll make you a brand new person from the inside out. Would you invite him into your life in the quietness of this moment? Say, God, I'm a sinner, but I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin.
died a humiliating, horrible, shameful death so that I could be free and be his child. If you pray that prayer this morning, would you let myself know or someone that brought you? We want to make sure that we help you grow in your Christian walk. If you're here today and you have a a question or a concern about your spiritual life, we'll be available to pray with you after the service. Don't walk out of here and just flip your nose in the air when you've heard a message that God is speaking to you about. That's my challenge to you. Do not do that. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, is in boy.org or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Hero. Have a blessed day.